Romans chapter 12. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your unconditional love. Thank you for your holy word, your word that you inspired and and preserved for us so we can read it and study it, partake of it, even this day, Father. We pray, Lord, that you would bless every servant on this campus and empower uh, your servants, Lord, to, to serve in your love, your joy, your peace, all for your glory. We pray for every student in every classroom on campus and all of your children in this room, Father, that you'll help all of us to have open and receptive hearts to your word and to your work. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to draw nearer to you. And I pray for the gift of teaching. I pray for sensitivity to your spirit, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Romans chapter 12. You want to go there? So at this time, of course, we are living in a world where we can see and, of course, experience competition. Competition, of course, in, in sports. We just saw the Super Bowl. We see and experience competition in politics. We have an election coming up, for an example. Job opportunities, there's competition. One interviewee is competing with another person who is applying for that job as well. And so we see and experience competition all the time. And in competition, of course, we know that there are clear winners. There there are also clear losers in the competition. And tonight, of course, we're going to study Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. And we're going to see another competition there, of course, between good and evil. And by the time we're finished with this lesson, and even during the lesson, we're going to have cause to evaluate if good or evil is winning in our lives. So, so far we talked about in Romans 12, we talked about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. We we talked about being transformed, not conformed to this world. And then, of course, we talked about spiritual gifts. And so as we get into this study and begin to evaluate if good or evil is winning in our lives, We're going to learn about the characteristics of a Christian life or the Christian lifestyle. And so our study begins in verse 12. I'm sorry, in verse 9 in Romans 12. And it says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So again, beginning with this verse. We're starting to see some characteristics of the Christian lifestyle. And so as we go through this study all the way up to the end of this chapter, to verse 21, you want to highlight those characteristics. But in this verse, our first verse of the night, in verse 9, we see three commands for us as believers. The first command is to 
love without hypocrisy. In other words, love sincerely. So don't just love with lip service. Don't just say it or don't just love in pretense. But love sincerely without hypocrisy. In, in Psalm 55 verse 21. The word of God says this. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter. But war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil. Yet they were drawn swords. So again, that's Psalm 55 verse 21. And in context, we believe that, of course, the Holy Spirit gave his inspired word to David. But you see also David's personality come through here. And so we believe or it seems like David is speaking of a traitor in his life. Perhaps he's talking about Ahithophel, who was his counselor. And so you can understand if you read Second Samuel 15, you can understand how this verse would make sense. And that's how some people are in our lives. Words smoother than butter. Well, I love you. You're, you're the best. You're my buddy. Best friend. But war was in their heart. On the inside, they're thinking about how they're going to take us down. We see the same type of attitude, of course, with Judas and his deceitful kiss when he kissed Jesus to give him away, to have him arrested in the garden. And so we are not to be like that, but we're to love sincerely, love without hypocrisy. Another command that we see in verse nine is that we need to hate evil. So when you abhor something, you you hate it. It's a thing of disgust. So evil should be disgusting to us. And look at what it says in Psalm 97, verse 10. It says, you who love the Lord hate evil. That's a command. If you love the Lord, the command is to hate evil. That that should be a natural byproduct of being in love with the Lord of the universe, the God of the universe. It says that he preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. But then we see a third command here in verse 9 of Romans 12. And that third command is to cling to what is good. Hate evil. Let it be disgusting to you, but then cling to what is good. I mean, now cling comes from a Greek word that means to glue together, cement or fasten together. So cling, hold on to what is good. And so just to summarize what we've seen in verse nine, if we love without hypocrisy, then, of course, we're going to hate evil and cling to good. And in verse 10, it says, be kindly affectionate to one another or tenderly love one another. Remember, this is talking to believers. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. Now, the Greek word behind that phrase, brotherly love, is is Philadelphia. It is the love of brothers or sisters. And so as believers, we are to love one another as family members because that's what we are. We are a part of God's family. 
We are born into his family so we can call ourselves children of God because that's how he sees us. And then, of course, we see in the scriptures that loving our fellow Christians, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is so important that is actually considered a mark or evidence of salvation as we see in 1 John Chapter three, verse 14, it says, we know that we have passed from death to life. It's already done. You repent, you put your faith in Christ, you're saved. You've already passed from death to life. And now it's sanctification time. Now it's growing time. Now it's becoming more mature, more mature, less of us and more of Christ. Sanctification time. But at the moment of salvation, the moment we surrender our lives to Christ, to allow him to be the savior of our lives. We pass from death to life. Because what? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother, his fellow Christian, abides, remains. In other words, in death. When we talk about death. We talk about separation. Physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death, the separation of, of a person from, from the life of God. And so we don't have eternal life. You can be alive physically, but spiritually dead. Separation in that relationship with God. And of course, if a person dies in that state, they'll be eternally separated from God. In a place that is called hell in the scriptures that Jesus actually talked about. And so we talk about it. It's reality. And so loving the brethren is so important. Again, it is a mark. It is a mark of our salvation. But I like what it says near the end of verse 10. Because at the end of that verse, it says, in honor, giving preference to one another. What that means is that we should try to outdo one another in honoring one another. So this does not leave room, of course, for selfishness. This does not leave room for pride. It does not leave room for a person to have the mindset of I'm the big I, you are the little you's. Doesn't leave room for selfishness. Outdo each other in honoring one another. And this is a byproduct. This is a sign of love for the saints, for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, as we continue in verse 11, it says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Again, we're looking at characteristics of the Christian life. How Christians should look to the world as we, as we live this life. I do want to point out that the Greek word behind the English word fervent means to boil with heat. To boil with heat. So instead of being lazy and indifferent, that means you're, you, you don't really care. So instead of being that way and serving the Lord, we should be serious and we should be enthusiastic as we serve him. In other words, we should be boiling over. And some people say we should be fired up about serving the Lord. And our attitude in serving God should make people interested. It should pique their curiosity in a good way, of course, and help them to see what they're missing out on. Some of them thinking, man, I've tried this and I've tried that. 
and, and I, and I still don't have fulfillment in my life, but, but as they see us serving the Lord, taking that service to Him seriously, boiling over and just being on fire for God, fervent for Him as we serve Him, as they see that, that should make them thirst for what we have, for that same relationship with God that we have. That relationship, of course, comes through Jesus as Jesus himself proclaimed that he is the way, the truth and the life. And nobody can get to God, the father, except through him. In verse 12, it says rejoicing in hope. This is how believers should be. We should be rejoicing in hope and patient in tribulation or affliction. We should also be uh, steadfastly in prayer, continuing steadfastly in prayer and of course we should rejoice in hope because the hope that we have as believers is a is a sure hope so yes that is something definitely to rejoice about it's a sure thing and and this biblical hope that we're talking about it's not an uncertainty well I, i hope this happens i'm uncertain about it and so the world uses hope in that way They're not sure, but for the believer and and the biblical definition that believers use in speaking of hope, it is a joyful and confident expectation of coming good. In this case, the coming good is eternal salvation. And Hebrews 619 describes this hope that we have. In Hebrews 619, it says this hope that we have, this joyful expectation of coming good, of this eternal salvation that we have as believers. This hope that we have is actually an anchor of the soul. It is both sure. In other words, it's firm and it is steadfast. It is secure. It is a, a secure, firm hope. It is a sure thing, not an uncertainty. And this hope, it says, enters the presence behind the veil. And when we think about the veil, it, 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 we think about the tabernacle. Or we may think about the temple. And, and that last room in the tabernacle or in the temple was called the, the Holy of Holies. And, and, and that's, where, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And it represented the presence of God. And so... That hope that we have, this sure anchor that we have enters the presence, the presence of God behind the veil. And so notice that the hope, our anchor is not anchored to the ground, but it is anchored up. And that's where our hope is because we're going to be with the Lord. And, And behind that veil, if you continue to read in Hebrews 6, that is where our forerunner went. And who's our forerunner? Jesus Christ, our high priest. And so wherever our high priest is, then that's where we're going to be. And therefore, that is where our hope, that is our anchor. That's where it's anchored. There. Behind or behind the veil. In the presence of God. But also, we're to be patient. Patient in tribulation, in our affliction or troubles. Now, this tribulation is not talking about the great tribulation period because the, the troubles that that come during the great tribulation is actually the wrath of God being poured out on a Christ rejecting earth. But the tribulation that that we experience as believers actually comes from the world and the enemy. 
Yes, we have an enemy of our souls, Satan and the fallen angels. We call them demons and so demons. And so that's where our tribulation comes from. And Jesus even said that in this world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have trouble. You don't belong to this world system. In fact, we are called citizens of heaven. So although that is true, that is something that Jesus himself said that in this world, we're going to go through tribulation. He said in me, in spite of that, you will have peace. That's what we get our peace from. We get it from Christ. And so we're to be patient in tribulation. Why? Because number one, God uses it to mature us. God uses that tribulation to mature us. Help us to be more like Christ and less like the old us. But number two, we're also to be patient in tribulation because it is only for a moment. It is temporary. It is not eternal. Trouble does not last always, as the song says. But then, of course, we're to be persistent in prayer. Jesus even taught a parable about that. He said that men ought always to pray and not faint. And that word faint, which is the word that the King James Version uses, that word faint means to not lose heart. Don't give up. Don't don't be discouraged, but to be persistent in prayer. And it sounds like uh, the Apostle Paul was well versed in Jesus's teachings because you're, you're going to see a lot of that as we look at the characteristics of the Christian life. Persistent in prayer. Verse 13. It says that as believers, we also distribute to the needs of the saints or share with the saints should also be giving, given or pursuing hospitality so now we need to keep this in mind as we're serving the saints as we serve the saints we need to keep in mind that number one it pleases god it pleases god hebrews 13 16 if you want to write that down but another awesome thing another benefit of serving the saints is that it's not something that god will forget God remembers it. Hebrews 6.10 says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister serving the saints. God doesn't forget that. He remembers. But not only should we be serving the saints, but also we should be Friendly and showing hospitality to guests and strangers. Whether those guests and strangers come here to this building, to this local church or to our homes. Be friendly. Be a blessing to them. Don't don't make the guests and strangers feel like they can't wait to check out of here. Racing for the doors because we were so unfriendly. Because we were not hospitable. In verse 14, it says, bless, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Sounds just like Jesus. I mean, he's God. So what do you expect? The word of God is going to be consistent. But bless means wish good for or to speak well of. 
So bless, speak well of those. Wish good for those who persecute you. Those who cause you harm or hardship. Bless and do not curse. Don't wish evil upon them. Oh, they hurt me. Well, I wish they'd go outside and get hit by a car in the parking lot. That's cursing. Or literally using foul language against them. It could be that too. But don't do that, it says. Wish good for them. Speak well of them. And this, of course, is different from the world's ways. Different from the world's ways. And you can expect that because we belong to a different kingdom. It's not run in the same way that the devil influences the world system to run. And so here is what Jesus says. And many of you are familiar with this because we have many Bible scholars in here. That's why I have to study so hard. In Matthew 5 verses uh, 43 to 45, it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, in the scriptures, you'll find love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That's not something you'll find in the scriptures, not something you you'll find in the Old Testament. That that's something that 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 people that hate your enemy part people have developed over time. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But Jesus is correcting it. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And this is something that you'll find as you begin to pray for people who spitefully use you, for those who mistreat you, for those who persecute you verbally or physically. As you pray for them, you'll find that you're going to have a hard time hating the people that you pray for. So pray for them. Do good to them. Love your enemies. And 45, again, says that you may be sons of your father in heaven. It's not saying this is how you earn your way into being a child of God. It's just simply saying in verse 45 that when we do those things, it's evidence. It shows That we are true children of God. Because God blesses the evil. And he blesses the good. He blesses believers with sunshine. And with rain that they need. And so in that same way we're to love those who hate us. Those who mistreat us. Those who consider themselves our enemies. As well as those of course who are a part Of the body of Christ. Now verse 15 it says. That we are to rejoice. As believers with those who rejoice. We're to weep. With those who weep. And why should we rejoice. With other believers. Well to answer that question. I like to use an example of. Our our physical family. Our blood relatives see some of us have come for back from backgrounds where our, our family members haven't accomplished much so so maybe someone for, from your family your children grandchildren or maybe you maybe you were the first college graduate in your family maybe you became the first believer 
in your family. Maybe you were the first in your family to get a, a, a high position. Maybe you were the first one in your family to not go the life of game banging or drug dealing or whatever type of sinful lifestyle there is. Maybe you were the first one in your family to do something that is positive. And so even in our literal families, just as it's a blessing when, when one member is successful, it's a blessing when that happens in our family. But one member sets the family last name on the map. The, the, the family last name is not the butt of jokes anymore. But it's something to be proud of because you got this, this one member who have done something great. And so we rejoice with that family member. Because we understand that as they become elevated, that it elevates the entire family's last name. And it's the same way in the body of Christ. When one member in the body of Christ is elevated, then that elevates the entire body of Christ. When one person in the body of Christ begins to walk into his or her calling, that makes the body of Christ that much better. When one member in the body of Christ is blessed, that makes the body of Christ that much more blessed. It's just like in our literal bodies. You know, if our finger is hurting, that kind of causes maybe another finger on our hand to maybe overcompensate. And sometimes that happens in the body of Christ when somebody is not using his or her gifts. Now, some other members begin to try to compensate for whatever's missing. But once that person begins to walk in his or her calling after they discover their gifts and, and surrender to the Holy Spirit, it elevates the entire body of Christ because now we begin to operate the way he wants the body to operate. You see, when injured parts of the body now become healthy, you know, when our hamstring on our literal bodies become healthy, if we had a hamstring pull, when it becomes healthy now, now the other parts of our leg muscles are not overcompensating for that. It's such a blessing. And so because of those blessings for those other uh, family members in the body of Christ, we should be rejoicing with them because if they're victorious so are we if they're blessed so are we because we improve when when they improve and when we truly need to catch that vision in verse 16 it says be of the same mind toward one another or it could be said to live in harmony on the same page with each other And do not set your mind on high things. Don't be arrogant, but associate with the humble. Associate with those who seem to be unimportant. Uh, Associate with those who seem to be ordinary people. And don't be wise in your own opinion. You know, that first part of verse 16 kind of reminds us of something that Jesus commanded. He said to avoid only inviting the people who could pay us back. Don't just invite your friends. Don't just invite the folks who have money, who have prestigious and high positions. Don't just invite them because they can pay you back. But no, invite the maim, invite the blind, invite the lame, invite those people who don't have as much money, those who can't pay you back. 
And so it's the same type of message that we see here in verse 16, where it says, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. You know, maybe some of you in this room have been overlooked. Because to other people, you're thought of as unimportant. They may think that, but it's not true. To other people, you're just ordinary. And that could be true. But God uses ordinary people in awesome ways. So maybe you today, maybe there's someone who is in that position where you feel overlooked by man, maybe overlooked in the church, maybe overlooked on the job, overlooked in your community. You do the same type of work, maybe even a little better, but but your work isn't recognized. You don't seem to be as appreciated by others as someone else is appreciated. But I just want to encourage you tonight that although man may overlook you, that is not true with God. God is not overlooking you. He knows exactly what's in your heart. He knows exactly what you are doing behind the scenes. He didn't overlook you when he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to die for your sins. He didn't, he didn't overlook you when he died for everybody else and left you out of that equation. He didn't overlook you in his love. He, he didn't overlook you in his blessings or in his plan. So maybe men have done that, but God hasn't. I just want to encourage you tonight. Squeaky voice and all. I just want to leave you with that encouragement. But it also says in verses 17 and 18, it says to repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Or give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. In the J.B. Phillips New Testament, the phrase reads this way. It says, don't say it doesn't matter what people think, but see that your public behavior is above criticism. In other words, walk blamelessly. That means there shouldn't be any obvious sins in your life. Let your light shine so that men will glorify your father in heaven. And verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so not everybody's going to want peace with you. But don't let that discord come on your end. In fact, we just do our part to promote peace. Verse 19, it says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Don't take revenge for yourselves but rather give place to wrath for it is written. Vengeance is mine. I will repay says the Lord, which is actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 35. So now it doesn't just tell us what not to do. It told us not to repay anyone evil for evil, but now we are told what to do. And what we are to do is to give place to wrath. In other words, we need to let God 
take care of them. Let God take care of the situation. You see, when we when we try to take care of it, when we be vengeful and try to take revenge into our own hands, when we demonstrate our own wrath, it's, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be pure, but as opposed to our wet wrath, God's wrath, which is his anger that is shown as punishment, it is, number one, his wrath, his punishment is always right. And not only is his punishment always right, but it is always done with the right motive. Whereas for us, it's not. It's not always done with the right motive. And then the third thing about God's wrath is that it is always done with the right attitude. God is perfect. He's, he's pure. He's, he's holy. But we don't always have the right attitude. And so we need to allow God to be God. He does a very good job at that. We don't need to step into his position and try to do his job. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In verse 20, it says, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And that's from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. And so we saw what our job is not. Our job is not to, to pour wrath on, on, on people. It's not to dish out punishment on people. Personal vengeance. No, our job, it says here in verse 20, is to love our enemy. Enemies hungry, feed them. Enemies thirsty, give the enemy something to drink. And so doing, it says, we heap coals of fire on our enemy's head. And many, of course, believe this refers to a person who shares their live coals with someone who needs some coals in order to start their own fire to keep warm. And this, of course, will be considered a kind act. But then there's some who say that the coals of fire refers to the shame felt by our enemies when we treat them kindly, despite being mistreated by them. But we need to keep our minds on the big picture. When we do this, when we show kindness and love to our enemies, we need to consider this. We need to consider that our kind treatment that is shown to our enemies is actually an opportunity for an enemy to become a friend, for an enemy to become a brother or sister. And so you may lose an enemy, but then gain a friend. That's long term. Think long term. Verse 21, it says, do not become or do not overcome. Be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. The scriptures tell us in verse 21. Now, before we we close in and start talking about evil and good and which one is winning in our lives. I want to start with just a, a, a short description of figurative language. Because there's different types of figurative language. One example is a simile. You use the words like or as to make a comparison of a couple things. And then you have a metaphor. A metaphor does not use the words like or as. 
A metaphor just says one thing is something else. And so here, the, the type of figurative language I'm going to use in talking about evil and good. And maybe you got a clue from this in the title, but I'm going to use personification. And this means that I'm going to give human attributes to this thing or this idea. And so evil and good are are actually personified when I ask the question, who's winning? You see, technically it would say what's winning because these are these are ideas. They're they're abstract. But I want to personify them. I want to give them human attributes. So who is winning? Is evil winning in your life? Is, is evil winning in my life or is good winning in our lives? In other words, are, are we abhorring? Are we hating what is evil or are we clinging to what is good? And so what, what, who is winning in our lives, good or evil? And so if a person is overcome by evil, what are you going to see as, as described in tonight's lesson? If a person is overcome with evil, there's going to be hypocritical love. They're not going to love the brethren. They're only be concerned about themselves and they're not going to take serving the Lord seriously. They're not going to be fired up about serving the Lord. A person is overcome by evil, being beat up by evil. It's only going to be concerned about the temporary things, the, the temporal. They'll be ready to give up in tribulation. Evil is pounding on them. They're ready to give up. They're, they'll be ready to stop praying. They'll be neglecting the saints, not being hospitable when evil is conquering them, when they're being overcome with evil. They're going to be cursing people who mistreat them, envious towards those they should be rejoicing with. They're not going to be compassionate, weeping with those who are weeping. These are signs of being beat up, conquered, or overcome with evil. They're going to cause disruptions or discords with the saints. They're not going to be concerned about the average person, but they're going to be looking down their noses at the people they consider to be average. They're going to depend on worldly wisdom instead of the wisdom that comes from God. They're going to be repaying evil for evil when they're overcome with evil, when they're being beat up and conquered with evil. Well, well, Pastor Durrell, doesn't it say in the Bible, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth? Isn't that repaying evil for evil? Well, go back in the scriptures and read it in context. Because eye for eye, tooth for tooth was actually designed to help with making the punishment fit the crime. With eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it, it, was, it was saying that the punishment shouldn't be more than what the crime deserves. So that's what it's supposed to be. But people over time made it into a thing of vengeance. And so Jesus had to come and make some corrections. And so a person would repay evil for evil. If they're overcome with evil, they'll be living in the flesh, in the public, living the life that is not blameless. In short, when we are overcome with evil or by evil, that means we allow anything other than God to influence us and that we take the bait. But now what does it look like to be overcome or to overcome evil with good, which is what we're supposed to do 
as believers in our Christian lifestyle. And so if we're overcoming evil with good, we're going to love without hypocrisy. We're going to love believers. We're going to honor others more than ourselves. We're going to esteem others more than we esteem ourselves. It tells us in Philippians chapter 2, which is actually the mind of Christ. We're going to serve God seriously and with all our heart, passionately, boiling over as we serve the Lord when we overcome evil with good. We're going to be focused more on the eternal and not on the temporary things. And that speaks about the hope that we talked about earlier in our lessons. And instead of giving up in tribulation, we are not going to give up in tribulation if we're overcoming evil with good. We're also going to keep praying. We're not going to cut off communication with the God who's able to help us. We're going to continue to pray to, to God in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we're going to continue to help meet the needs of the saints. We're going to be hospitable to the guests and to the strangers. You're going to bless those, speak well of those who mistreat us. We're going to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We're going to be compassionate to those who need some compassion. In other words, we're going to weep with those who are weeping. We're going to be in harmony with the saints instead of sowing seeds of discord. Again, this is what it looks like when we are overcoming evil with good. We're going to associate with the average person because we understand in the body of Christ, even if a believer works in the backgrounds, that they are just as important as the person who is in the foreground. And so we're going to associate with the average person. We're going to depend on the wisdom of God and not upon the wisdom of the world, which is really no wisdom at all. And instead of repaying evil for evil, we're going to repay evil with good. That is what it looks like as believers in our lifestyles when we are overcoming evil with good. And of course, we're going to be living above criticism in public. But then there's a challenge to that. Terrell, that is, that is so challenging. That's, that's, that's really hard, Terrell, to, to, to love those who mistreat us, to, to pray for people who mistreat us. It's so hard to be hospitable to, to people, Terrell. I don't, I don't even know. It's hard, Terrell, to, to click with some of these other believers and to be kindly affectionate towards them. Darrell, it's so hard to, to rejoice in hope when, when I see things in front of my face right now that's so hard to deal with. How am I supposed to hold on and, and trust in something that I cannot see? And so, yes, we may think that, yeah, there's some challenges to it. And it is challenging. And it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be hard on our own. To be clear, on our own, on our own, it is challenging. And this leads us, of course, to depend on God. And so depending on God is actually the solution to the challenge. The solution to the challenge of overcoming evil with good. To loving, to loving our enemies. Ask Jonah. Oh, he had a hard time with that. But that was only, that is only possible for us to do that. If we're born again, if we're given a new nature, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. 
And so that's the solution to the challenge. God, depend on him as the worship team comes to the stage. And then this is the final word that I want to share with you. And it's in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. And I'll share from the New Living Translation. It says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do. And he will bless you for it. You see that? God will bless us for something that we're not able to do on our own. That's grace. He'll bless us for doing something that we need his grace and his Holy Spirit to do. That's like doing our kids chores at home. We do their chores at home and then we pay them for work that we did on their behalf. That's grace. Think about that. This is the kind of father that we serve. And so we have communion tonight. And we're so thankful for our father who sent his only begotten son, Jesus. Died for our sins. Of course, rose again. So he's alive. And because he lives, we live. But as we partake of communion, we remember his death. So, of course, the the cracker represents his body. And the juice is representative of his blood that, that sets the new covenant into effect. The same blood that washes us and makes us whiter than snow. Washes out completely that crimson stain of sin. And so as we partake of that cracker in the juice, we do that in remembrance of him. So it's a time of remembering his death. It's a time of evaluation. Ask the Lord to show us anything in our lives that's sinful, that So that we'll confess it and repent. Of course, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a time of gratitude. Because without him, we're still lost. And so you'll have an opportunity to to partake of communion. It's done a little differently on Wednesday nights if you're new or visiting. And so um, as you pray and feel led, you can come to the front or go to the back there and um, get the elements and take it back to your seats and, you know, pray. It's just you and the Lord or um, if your spouse is here, pray with them and partake. And so I won't come back up tonight. So I just want to thank you for coming out. And I want to leave you with the word of prayer. So, Father, we thank you for tonight. Lord, we pray for, for anyone here who's, who's struggling with sin. We 
pray, Lord, that you help them to overcome. Lord, we, we pray for those who have people in their lives who just been irritating them. We pray, Lord, that you would stir their hearts to pray for them, to do good to them, to love them. Lord, we all need your help in that. We pray for anyone, Lord, who's not a believer tonight. If they were to die today, they wouldn't know where they're going. I pray, Lord, that you convict them of sin and draw them to Jesus. Your goodness, Lord, the scriptures tell us, leads people to repentance. Lord, I pray, Lord, a benediction upon my brothers and sisters. That you would bless them, Lord. That you would keep them. That, Lord, as they leave this place, that they'll be confident that they never leave your presence. May you use them, Lord, to be a blessing to others this week. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for coming out. God bless you.
priests that sing their praise I hunger and thirst for your righteousness And it's only found in one place Take me into the holy of holies Take me in by the blood of the land Take me into the holy of holies Take the cold, cleanse my us in your perfect peace, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.